WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Stephen Rich. Tonight on the show, we wanted to explore some cities around the state that you might not know much about, looking past the images that some of these cities project and examining what these places really have to offer. This is Exposure. Again, I am Stephen Rich, and this is WDBM Impact 89 FM. You're listening to Exposure. The recession of 2008 hit Michigan especially hard. Unemployment hit a high of over 13%, and the state appeared to many as a rusted state past its prime. However, as the state has recovered, we've seen a crop of new industries across Michigan. One especially interesting, microbrewing. Jeremy Sprague, co-owner and co-founder of the Lansing-based microbrewery and distillery Sleepwalker, came to chat with us about this business. So Sleepwalker sort of began as uh, uh, an idea from a friend of mine, Matt Jason, who's also CEO of Sleepwalker Spirits and Ale, about five years ago. And we started studying microdistilling. Um, we are big whiskey fans, and we're also big homebrewers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, after you know, a couple of classes here and there and uh, some time at the Siebel Institute, we uh, have forged ahead and... Uh, uh, filed with the uh, the SEC and uh, Michigan uh, state of Michigan regarding um, becoming an S corp and selling uh, shares for our business. Awesome. Um, and now this summer we're hoping to be open within about a month to sell and make beer at the Allen Marketplace Allen Neighborhood Center. Yep. Awesome. And- I actually I was looking you up and I've had some history talking to you guys. And so I was interested in your relationship with the Allen Neighborhood Center and the Allen Street Market. Um, how important has that been to, you know, building your business? It's been huge. Um, we've spent, you know, a few uh, uh, events. We were able to sort of sample some of our homebrew beer. And now we've gone ahead and signed a lease, a letter of intent to lease uh, space at the Allen Neighborhood Center. They've just uh, so that we can sell beer there about once or twice a week. Mm-hmm even during the the uh, farmer's market as well. But we're going to be an anchor tenant there. And they've pretty much, as far as support goes, they are a, you know, a food business incubator kind of thing. So they've been just nonstop supportive all, all along the way for the mm-hmm. last about two and a half years. So they have lured us in, and we are actually <laughs> going to do a small pop-up brewery this summer. That's great. It's getting exciting. That's really cool. And um, you know, kind of expanding beyond that, uh, Michigan's beer industry has really blossomed in the last couple of years. Um, you know, Grand Rapids is now considered Beer City USA. I don't know if they came up with that themselves or someone calls them that. <laughs> it's but... <laughs> very clever. Very clever <laughs> stuff. And they're uh, hosting the um, National um, Home Brewers Festival next week. 
as well as, you know, some large mar- microbreweries are in the state of Michigan between Founders and Bells and Shorts. You know, uh, a ton of Michigan-based breweries Yum. have grown. Yeah, exactly. Yum. <laughs> so um, how important do you think this industry of microbrewing and microdistilling has become for the state? I think it's giant. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 like, I have no- nothing but just respect and excitement when you mention Founders and Bells and, and Shorts. Um, I think, you know, they're very all very creative people. And if you start to look at, you know, how they're, you know, what, what portion of the market share they're starting to uh, enjoy in beer period, even, you know, with the giant macro people, it's impressive. And I think that it gives all of us here in Michigan something to be proud of. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. It's a cool industry. Making beer is so much fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, a little bit of science and... Uh, and it's it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I've I've uh, helped out a couple of times, and it seems like half of the time it's focusing on getting everything right, and the other half of the time is just hanging out. So. Totally, absolutely, <laughs> keeping everything super clean and yeah. having having a couple of home brews uh, while you're brewing <laughs> the next home brew. So, so do you expect um, a similar growth to happen in micro distilling, or is it a, a such a different business that it it won't grow as high, big as micro uh, brewing has grown? I think that it's. I do believe it's going to grow. I think if if you sort of look at the landscape um, as far as spirits in any you know store, uh, package store, or even some of our grocery stores, there are tons of imported spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some dynamite whiskeys here, and, and even some great domestic uh, vodkas, even from Michigan. But I think there's tons of room for uh, U.S. players in that market as well. And in f- coming from and li- being born here and raised in Michigan. With all of our natural resources, there's just tons and tons of things that we're going to be be able to do with uh, whiskey and vodka and and tons of different spirits. I even brought you some a ver- very cool infusion for you today, oh. not to taste on air, <laughs> but for you to take home and enjoy a cinnamon oat honey cinnamon infusion oat. whiskey white wow. whiskey infusion. It's delicious. So that sounds great. <laughs> Well, cool. Yeah. I mean, I've, one of the things I've heard about micro distilling is that the economies of scale for distilling is harder for small players to break in. How have you guys, um, how have you guys, you know, uh, beaten that or as Sleepwalker, how have you gotten past that? Well, you have to remember too, that Sleepwalker is just opening right now. Mm-hmm. We are just finishing our federal TTB uh, application and our state Michigan Liquor Control Commission licenses are very close to being complete. We will only be starting with beer this mm-hmm. summer. Oh, okay. Once we're finished being uh, capitalizing our escrow account, we will find our big shop, and then we will start distilling whiskey there. Um, you know, it's a little bit prohibitive to make spirits because when you make a bunch of beer, you know, you get to drink all of that beer. Mm-hmm. When you make a whiskey, like a whiskey wash or, or, or a beer for the whiskey where you extract the spirits from that beer or that wash, uh, it's you know, a fraction of what you're starting with. So it, it takes a lot more sort of beer to make a whiskey. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's part of it. And then secondly, obviously, the the equipment is very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. So you got to have a decent chunk of change to get going. Mm-hmm. Got it. So, uh, well, cool. And so zooming back into Lansing, how, ha- how supportive has the community been for your business? Obviously, you've had some support with Allen Street Market. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, have you had a lot of... Um, different players support you guys in helping to get Sleepwalker going? We have, you know, the Rio Town Commercial Association, Ryan Wirt, um, tons of folks on the east side, Joe Nelson, Allen Neighborhood Center. Um, we've been doing events, you know, for the last, not tirelessly for the last couple of years, but as many that we can get into legally and mm-hmm. have some sampling of our spirits, or rather I should say mostly just beer. Um, 
it, it's been huge. And, and, you know, we have eight, over 800 likes on Facebook wow. and we're not even open yet. You know, the, <laughs> you know, we're, we have about 22 investors halfway to our escrow goal. And it, it's just, I think we, we share our beer and spirit infusions with uh, everyone mm-hmm. that we possibly can. And the support has been just huge. Mm-hmm. Very grateful for that. That's, that's great to hear. And um, so, uh, looking forward to the summer. Obviously, uh, working with Allen uh, Street Neighborhood Center is going to be probably your biggest event and the biggest place to find you. But is there anywhere else that we should be looking for you guys this summer? I would say, honestly, come to Allen Neighborhood Center, Allen Marketplace. Mm-hmm. Wednesdays or Fridays it was, I think, what we're shooting for for sales days. And um, that's we're going to pour our heart and soul into being there and providing tons of great beer for our community. Awesome. So if you'd like, you can check them out Wednesday and Friday. What are the times of the Allen Street? I think that we'll be selling between 4 and 7, but those days seven. are completely subject to change. Okay. And yeah. especially with production capacity, we want to try and make as much beer as we possibly yeah. can. So, <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, um, and lastly, before we do let you go, it looks like we're running a little bit out of time, but, you know, brewing and distilling, it's it's hard hands-on work. You know, we did make it sound easy earlier, but <laughs> right. it is. It's really hard. It it's a science. Yeah. So what attracted to you to this industry and why Why have you tried or worked so hard to be a part of it? You know, I'm currently a musician by trade and I have been for a very, very long time. Making people happy is pretty much what I've been doing for a living for almost two decades. And seeing the look on folks' faces when they taste one of my beers that I've spent a lot of time refining uh, and a lot of time making sure it's replicable seeing the look on their face is very, it, it, it is, goes hand in hand with what I'm already doing, which is singing songs to make people happy. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, seeing, you know, being a, making my community happy is, is pretty much what I've been doing all along. And with Sleepwalker Spirits and Ale, it'll just be a continuation of that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. For thank you, Stephen. <laughs> Rich, and you are listening to Exposure on Impact 89 FM. It's been called the most dangerous city in the United States and the infamous example of what happens when the automakers leave. But for those that still live there, Flint, Michigan has much more to offer. We spoke with the director of the Flint Institute of Arts about the city and its future. Well, the Flint Institute of Arts began as an art school back in 1928, uh, formed by a group of artists who wanted to not only get together and share ideas, but also to share instructors that they would hire to, to come in. Mm-hmm. And we moved around from one location to another as the uh, student body grew. And as we began to collect art, basically adding a museum component to an art school, and that was back as early as 1930 that we collected our first oh, wow. works of art. And so in fast forward up to the late 50s, the um, the the those captains of industry that were here in Flint uh, with General Motors and with a lot of the suppliers were very visionary. And uh, they created 
what we call the cultural center. Mm-hmm. And in this cultural center, there are six major arts and cultural institutions, and the Flynn Institute of Arts is one of them. Okay. So we've been operating in this location since 1958. We have the 12th largest museum school in the country, and we're the second largest museum in the state. Wow, that's really great. Really great to hear. And so since you have such a, a longstanding history with the city of Flint, um, I just wanted to shift gears a little bit uh, before we talk about the Institute, institute itself and talk about um, the city. You know, obviously Flint has had some problems in recent years. In 2013, a business insider named Flint as the most dangerous city in America, according to the FBI statistics. Um, but do you think Flint um, will be able to uh, beat these problems going forward as a city? Well, I'm... Um certain it will, and, and uh, that's really one of its highest, for safety is one of its highest priorities right now. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're recovering from the loss of our major industry, General Motors, which took a few decades to, um, to pull out of Flint, but they really reduced the workforce, and, um, and as a result, the tax base went down, and Flint began to uh, experience some troubles that we're going to take some time to get out of. And uh, I think the city was doing really a great job of coming back until the most recent recession, which sort of slowed things down again. But uh, now that the economy is recovering, uh, we're seeing some some great growth, uh, job growth. Uh, the city is transforming itself and becoming a much more vibrant and interesting place to be. Uh, crime is is way down in the city. In fact, I think it would compare with, with very favorably with um, cities across the country that we we um, see as as being safe. Mm-hmm. Um, the cultural center where I work is only three blocks from the heart of downtown, and we uh, we do not have um, uh, problems with crime here. The crime seems to be localized in certain parts of of the city and um so i think that's where we're we're mounting up the statistics but uh i think you would find that, that the, those statistics aren't aren't evenly spread across across the city mm-hmm. um yeah and do you do you see the institute of arts and uh helping playing a role in helping to promote the recovery of flint well i th- i think so as as all museums are a reflection of the taste and interest and intellect of uh, the the people who help build it and those people who contribute works of art to the collection and and who uh, help shape uh, the programs that um, institutions like this offer, um, I I think uh, it's become a real source of pride and and also an indication of um, you know the values that the city has uh, over the decades and and still has today. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's really interesting. Thank you so much. And um, just to kind of uh, let our listeners know about what's going on with the Institute this summer, do you have any events or exhibits uh, that are coming up that you're excited for? Well, we've got so many things. You know, we're we're a city with over 30,000 uh, students wow. um, who attend classes in, in, in five uh, colleges or universities in the area. Wow. And so a lot of our activities are geared toward uh, the interests of students of college students. Um, we also do a lot with the public schools. Now, that's not in the summer as much as, as uh, other times of the year, but we're very um, uh, devoted to uh, educational offerings for those groups. But, you know, one of the things that 
people, I think, find most exciting about the Flint Institute of Arts are our galleries. We have a very deep collection of um, well-known artists, important works of art, and um, we, ha- we have enough that we have to rotate it on a regular basis. So mm-hmm. really, just about any time you visit, you're going to see something new just from our collection alone. But we also have um, two large galleries that we devote to works that we don't own, things that we borrow to bring in and either complement our collection or give all new experiences mm-hmm. that our collection can't provide. And one of the most exciting things that's coming up will be this fall. It starts in October, and it's the history of video games. Wow, that sounds really cool. <laughs> oh, it goes back to the, the very first machines and the first designers, and it, um, it, it comes right on up to today. And the emphasis is on the aesthetic development of video games over the decades. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at first it was sort of uh, just a technology-based um, industry where I, I really I, I think um, uh, the artist played a secondary role uh, in in the design of the games. But today these games start with the with the artists and their concepts and their images, and then the technology is wrapped around it. Hmm. So it's very interesting to see the aesthetic transformation. And I think for anyone who is interested in in that industry, it's such a uh, an interesting walk through time to see how the equipment and the technology and the imagery ha- has developed. For many people, they've never even seen some of these pieces of equipment before. Mm-hmm. They're antiques. <laughs> <laughs> so, and there will be PlayStations. Um, it's a real hands-on exhibition. <laughs> it's and it's it's. Uh, I, th- I think something um, that'll be exciting for people to see. Mm-hmm. Yep, that sounds r- really great. Thank you so much. Um, and we do we we have about a minute left. So before we go, um, just briefly, what do you see a- a- as the future for Flint in the institute itself? Well, I think again, as I said, Flint's transforming itself. It's bringing uh, industry back. You know, we have a a well-trained uh, workforce here. And it is attractive to industry from the outside to come in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, the, the cultural offerings here are beyond what any city our size in the country has. And we're all right across the street from each other. And uh, we're right, right next to downtown, which is coming back. There are great restaurants and boutiques, um, new, new apartment living downtown. It's, it's not what people hear about in the media. Mm-hmm. Well, well except- Yours, of course. <laughs> well, we're trying to help you out. We really, really uh, do like the Institute. Well, well thank we you. We appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you.
back to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89 FM. I am Stephen Rich. Today on the show, we're focusing on different cities in Michigan. As we've seen recovery in cities across the state, supporting communities becomes important to sustain this growth. The Michigan Municipal League assists communities with these issues. Matt Bach called in to discuss the organization's work and contributions to the community. We're a nonprofit organization that serves Michigan's uh, cities and villages. We do everything from provide training about, you know, things like how to run a meeting to the Open Meetings Act to also we have a, uh advocacy arm in Lansing where we uh, fight for legislation that supports uh, cities and our member communities. Okay, so it sounds like it's a kind of a community, community-centered hub for, but for the entire state, right? Correct. Yep. We have more than uh, 500 uh, community members, so everyone from, you know, Detroit to, you know, Omer, <laughs> or our members. So. Well, very cool. And, um, you know, obviously in recent years, a lot of cities in Michigan have faced a lot of challenges, Detroit being the obvious highlight. But, you know, other cities have faced some as well. How do you guys work to address some of the issues in places like Flint or Muskegon? Right. Well, one of the big things we're working on now is, you know, for the past decade or so, Michigan's cities and villages have been um, greatly underfunded by the state uh, through what is the one of the main sources of revenue is what they call revenue sharing, mm-hmm. and there's a long history of how this came about. But in essence, the state had promised the cities that they would give back um, X number of dollars each year over over the last many years. Well, the state through the appropriations process has kind of reneged on that promise and not given that money to this the community. So big part of what we're trying to do now is is now that things are turning around financially for the state, um, you know, we're trying to get some of that uh, income back for our city so that they can turn around and provide the services that people and their communities want, such as police and fire protection, good roads, uh, as well as schools and and other areas like that. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And one of the other campaigns you guys have been working on is called Let's Save Michigan, right? Yes, let's say Michigan was a kind of a grassroots campaign that we started up about four years ago that's now rolled into the league itself. And, and that is the whole idea is to get people on the grassroots level involved in their local communities. Um, we launched it uh, with a, actually a poster contest where people designed posters about, you know, uh, some of the eight assets that the Michigan Municipal League has identified for making for great communities, such as green initiatives. Um, walkability, entrepreneurship, public transit. So we had people do these posters, and that really kind of got the campaign started. From that, we got about 30,000 emails uh, from people that wow. we would uh, then use for, like, um, you know, for supporting different projects and programs at the grassroots level. Very cool. Um, and so w- w- with the campaign, I-, I saw that you guys have basically three main areas that you've been working on um, is education, engagement and advocacy. So just to go through each one of these and kind of get a general idea of the type of stuff that you guys are doing. So starting with education, what needs and improvements have you guys been addre- addressing there? 
Right. Well, we, education is, is a couple of different things. One, we, you know, we educate our members in the areas that I talked about. You know, we do training, we have conferences and conventions. Um, we also try to educate, um, you know, the, the public at large about, um, you know, issues that we're facing with. Uh, right now, the, the big issue is uh, personal property tax. Um, that is, uh, it's, it's a tax on businesses that um, mm-hmm. we spent a long time negotiating with the state officials, and that's actually going to election um, in the August, primary, August ballot primary. Uh, it's called Proposal 1. And so that would be an issue that we're trying to educate people about right now. It's like exactly what is the personal property tax? What would a yes vote or no vote mean for you? Um, and that type of thing. So that, that's one example of the education part. Okay, very cool. And then moving toward, more towards engagement, is that getting people engaged with their local community? Yes, exactly. Um, we are just recently there was a, a crowdfunding um, bill that was approved and signed by the governor, and that involves uh, where people can actually go and um, invest in uh, local uh, businesses in their community. So that's kind of in the infancy stage, but that's something we're going to be uh, promoting down the road. Um, the mm-hmm. whole crowdfunding movement. So that's one really exciting thing, way for people to get involved in their local communities. We also do a series of place plans, which when we go with this, is, involves us going into a specific community, like we've done one in Adrian, we're doing one in Kalamazoo, um, and, and we come up with a work with the community to form a project that they want to do to improve their community. For example, in, in uh, Celine, it was uh, improving an alley that they had there. It was kind of like, you know, like you see a lot of different alleys, and they wanted to make it more of a community asset. Oh, very cool. In Adrian, it was about restoring their waterfront. And these are all really community-driven projects. It was their idea, and we kind of helped facilitate that and, and kind of made that um, possible for them. Awesome. Very cool. And lastly, moving into more advocacy, it sounds like you guys are very involved Um with the local advocacy, uh, and so is this with the advocacy? Are you working with each individual uh, municipal to kind of advocate for themselves for the state, or is it more of a collective effort? Yeah, it's more of a collective effort. Well, we will have you know we have a team that that advocates on behalf of our members, but we also it's very important for us to get the individual communities involved as well. Um, for example, on this personal property tax issue, we're having a, a press conference in Utica. Uh, this week, and Utica Mayor will there. She'll be speaking, um, and we'll, when we have hearings in Lansing before the state senate and house, we actually have members come in and, and testify. Um, so, because we really think it's important for our lawmakers to hear from the people that are in the trenches, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, out there, you know, doing the work. So uh, they see our faces all the time. It's important for them to see our members and, and the mayors and the, and the council members that are really making the decisions that know what's happening in their own community. Oh, very cool, and. Uh... Just out of curiosity, do you ever run into issues where advocacy for one uh, community affects another, and how how would you deal with something like that? Well, you sure you you run into that, you know, particularly if an organization of our size, you know, needs of one community isn't necessarily the same needs or issues facing another. But that's why we 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 when we support or, or go after certain things in Lansing, we really believe strongly in local control. So that means we don't. We're typically against anything that mandates that all cities must do this or all cities must do that, that we're really in support of local control, saying cities have the option to do this if they want. They have the, they, It's up to the local community whether they want to choose to do X, Y, and Z. That way um, it's more flexible for 
communities. So one might see, yeah, that's something we want to do, where another one would say, well, that's not really going to work for us, and they each have that option. So that's why local control is such an important issue for us. Mm-hmm. And is there any, any anything on the federal level that you guys are currently working on? Yes, we have a, a, a federal um, advocacy person. Uh, transportation on a federal level is a huge issue right now oh, yeah, I bet. that uh, we're, we're dealing with. Uh, of course, health care has been a, a big issue. Um, that seems to be kind of getting more in a, a consistent way right now. Um, those are always uh, kind of hot-button items for us. Okay, very cool. And so if someone was interested in, in this sort of campaign, how do they get involved in their local level? Well, there's a couple ways. They can always go to our website, which is mml.org, O-R-G. And also I talked a little bit about placemaking and the place plans, and we have a lot of information about that, and that's at placemaking.mml.org. And there is actually a part in there that says engage, where you can learn about how to get more involved in your community and get more involved in the placemaking movement. Okay. And more generally speaking, just kind of as a summary of um, everything that you've said today, how do you think the league has helped the state grow as a whole? Well, I think we've brought awareness to the importance of what communities means to Michigan. Our slogan is better communities, better Michigan. And, you know, it, it sounds nice, but it's actually true. I mean, if you have a stronger, vibrant downtown, whether it's Detroit or Grand Rapids or Ann Arbor or Lansing or even like Old Town Lansing, places like that, then you're going to have a better surrounding community that, you know, um, Illinois wouldn't probably be as, where it is without a, a thriving Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing with uh, Portland or Seattle, any of your major cities that you think of. You know, those are kind of the, the economic drivers of this of the state. And so we truly believe that, that to have to move Michigan forward, you have to move our individual communities forward. Mm. Well, very cool. And uh, just looking forward, uh, are there any changes that you think um, that you'd like to address that would benefit the state as a whole? Um, well, we definitely think the revenue sharing is an issue that needs to be addressed. The, the municipal funding system that funds our cities right now has not worked for the last decade. The state continually erodes at the funding that the, the cities get. The municipal finance system needs to be fixed. Um, there's not really a recognition of that at the state level. We're, we're continuing to work on that. They say the right things, but when it comes right down to it, you know, they, they make little fixes, but really the whole system um, completely needs to be retooled and relooked at. And we have a, a plan called the Partnership for Place, which is also on our website that outlines exactly how to do that. So we're not just complaining. We actually have some specific um, things in that plan that suggest that would help move Michigan forward. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want mysmokefreeapartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking? Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. Mysmokefreeapartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Primetime.
Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure on Impact 89 FM. I'm Stephen Rich. Today on the show, we're discussing different struggles and achievement across the state. And Muskegon has been receiving recent attention as problems keep popping up in the community. Increased violence and a bankrupt school system are just a few issues that the city has seen in recent years. I spoke with community member Linda Vons about what she sees in the community and what needs to be done. Um, well, I've lived in Muskegon um, Heights all my life. Um, went to school there, graduated from Muskegon Heights High School, um, uh, my husband also attended Muskegon Heights High. Um, my two children also attended and graduated there. Um, most of my family is in the Muskegon area. I do have a brother that lives out of state. He lives in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I've been involved with the schools and with some of the other um, activities that the children get involved in. and I do some um, volunteer work. Through um, well, in the past, I did some volunteer work with Every Woman's Place, uh, so that's kind of mm-hmm. my history. Very cool. And um, I understand, is it your husband who has a, had a lot of involvement with education in Muskegon? Uh, yes, my husband was the uh, past president of the Muskegon High School Board. Um, he was the president for like 14 years. Um, actually, he was one of the youngest school board members when he was elected. I think he was. 2728. Wow. And he's now actually on the uh, Muskegon Area Intermediate School District, where he's now the presiding president, and his, he's been doing that for two going on the last three years. Okay, very cool. And so to move towards um, education to start, uh, there have been some problems with uh, uh, education in Muskegon, specifically with Muskegon Heights over the past couple of years. Um, what do you personally think of the state of education in Muskegon? Well, I think even with Muskegon Heights, I think now some of the other school districts are also beginning to have some of the same issues in regards to the funding that's coming in from Lansing. But I think particularly some of the issues with Muskegon Heights was um, with Muskegon, Muskegon Heights, say in Norton Shores, um, Reese Puffer, um, maybe within like a 10-mile radius, you could have gone to either school. Mm-hmm. But the funding level and the amount that the teachers were paid, there was a disparity. Say, for example, in Muskegon, um, teachers probably made maybe on the average $10,000 more once they reached the top than, say, a teacher at Muskegon Heights. And it would go the same for, like, Reese Puffer. So we, over the years, we have lost a lot of our teachers to the surrounding districts because they were able to pay their teachers more. And so when that happened, we lost a lot of students who followed. Mm-hmm. And over the years, um, because of how the funding is done between the, the cities, um, I think that impacted Muskegon Heights over the years where the numbers start going down. And I've also 
think that it affected a lot of the administrators that we've had. We've also lost a lot of um, good administrators over the past, and I'm talking prior to 2000. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes when the community saw that you were losing um, a quality of your staff, that um, led to an exodus of some of the families moving away from the district. Okay. And just to give our listeners some background, um, in in the city of Muskegon, there's four high schools in the area. There's Muskegon, Muskegon Heights, Reese Puffer, and Mona Shores right in Muskegon. So it, it is an interesting case where, um, like you said, students who live very close could go to completely different schools. Um, so, right. So what you um, have kind of made it sound like is that this was kind of a long problem coming. Um, so how have they been able to address it since it kind of came to head last, in the last two years? It's kind of strange that... Um if you look at your per capita income, say for like Norton Shores and Muskegon, Muskegon Hikes, there's also a disparity there. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I just think sometimes you have to look at uh, the quality of the teachers and you have to look at the curriculum too that's being taught. But now with Michigan, you know, all schools have to um, have the same curriculum in regards to what's required as far as like English, math, chemistry, you know, the algebra and all of that. Um, but I just think sometimes a perception became that, well, you know, because you're Muskegon Hikes and maybe you didn't have the opportunity to say advanced classes, you know, Mona Shores may have had them and Reese Puffer had them. People thought, well, maybe you weren't getting, uh, the same quality of an education, but they did have the opportunity to take some of those advanced classes through, see if they, if they thought that that was the path that they were going to take in life. Um, so I think some of it became just the perception that Muskegon Hikes wasn't offering a quality education. And if I was thought that that, then, you know, I could have thought twice about, you know, sending my kids somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think if, if your kids are committed to going to school and getting an education and doing what they need to do, I feel that they can be successful. And I think, you know, my kids were able to do that, um, both. Me and my husband graduated from Michigan State, and both of my kids just recently, within the last four years, also graduated from MSU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool to hear. I'm glad to hear you have a lot of Spartans in the family. Yeah, um, go Spartans. <laughs> <laughs> and so, is there any um, improvements or changes that you'd like to see at more to, more of an in, uh, administrative level in Muskegon as far as education? Well, I think, you know, in some of the schools, the administration is too top-heavy, and I think they could use a lot more of that money to... Um, retain some of the more quality teachers. Teachers have had to have had to give up, give up a lot, I think, over the years in regards to, um, you know, they've had pay freezes and they've had some other um, um, considerations they've had to take into. Uh, I just think with what happened with Muskegon Heights with in regards to the reorganization from a charter, basically, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's been well publicized that the school board actually failed in that in that capacity because they didn't keep an eye on the budget like they should have. They didn't make the timely cuts like they should have. They shouldn't have they didn't do a lot of the privatization that a lot of schools are now actually looking at. Um, I was just reading in the paper where Muskegon is going to be privatizing their custodial and their bus system. I believe Reese Puffer, I believe Ravana is also looking at all of that. And um, so I just think because Lansing is not willing to increase the amount of her pupil funding, 
and with uh, legacy costs of the teachers and insurance and retirement, that eats up, from what I was told, at least my husband informed me, that eats up like 82% of any school's budget. Wow. So unless you get any concessions there, a lot of schools are now looking at being on that deficit list. Mm-hmm. So I just think education in general, either for whether it's Muskegon Hikes, Public School Academy, Mona Shores, Muskegon, they're all going to be looking at some very hard choices in the next two to three years. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for uh, highlighting that for us. And now moving uh, away from education in Muskegon, one of the things you touched on a little bit earlier, and I just wanted to get more in depth with it, is is the segregation issue in Muskegon. Muskegon is actually one of the most segregated cities in uh, the United States. Last time I looked, it was the sixth most segregated city in the nation, which I think wow. is definitely a, a very big problem. Do you personally see that in the community? You know, Stephen, yeah, I do see that. Um even in, within my work environment, um, there um, seems to be a segregation among um, um, the races. Mm-hmm. And I know um, there, there's been several articles about um, on Sunday, you know, um, Muskegon is very segregated in regards to how people serve, to um, how they choose to, um, you know, um, go to religious um, services and things like that. Um, didn't know that Muskegon was number six in the country as, as being the most segregated um, community in the United States. Mm-hmm. But I'm beginning to see that more um, because of my role as a social worker and getting out into the community. And um, it, it's pretty sad because uh, I think that really just hurts the kids because especially when you look at um, the big expect kids to come back, you know, minority kids, if they expect them to come back, to the community to contribute, and if they don't feel that they're a part of that community, it's going to always stay like that. Mm-hmm. Very good point. And do you personally? I know you're probably you're not wouldn't consider yourself an expert in this area, but do you see a, a way we could address this sort of issue in the community? Well, we do have the Institute for um, what is it called? Institute for Racial Healing. Um, I know there's like a series of classes that they encourage. You know, all people. You know. Um, Blacks, whites, Hispanics, um, Asians, to attend so that everyone can get a get a better perspective on uh, cultures and cultural sensitivity and things like that. Um, I know even within my work um, place, we also have what's called a diversity committee. Um, it's not really well attended by the higher ups in the administration, so it's like you have most of. Um, you know, supervisors and people who work under them, they may attend on an occasional basis, but unless you have people who are willing to come to the meeting and talk about, you know, the real issues, it, it just seems to be just a committee that's set up just because it's on paper. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So to me, it sounds like it, it's just something that needs to be talked about more to start, make sure that people understand. I mean, you living there, not knowing that it's it's number six, which I, I mean, to be fair, I did have to look it up. So it's not well knowledge, but it is definitely an issue. And I think start talking about it and making sure people are aware of it is definitely a good place to start. And uh, so moving on to the next topic that I wanted to address specifically with Muskegon. Um, but as recent as May 28th, there was a fatal shooting in the Muskegon community, as well as increased violence across recent years. Um, do you think this is a trend that we should be worried about? Yes, uh, I think it is a trend. I don't know how much you've been keeping up with, um, like some of the shootings among the young people and the deaf. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, a lot of it stems from poverty. Um, we had an occasion to go and speak with some of the, uh, 
the kids at uh, what, what what most people call the the, um, the youth home, but it's now called the transition center. We had an opportunity to go in to talk with the kids, and we told them we wouldn't take any names. Um, they didn't have to um, let us know who their relatives were. They didn't have to talk about any names of kids that they may have been in gangs with, but they were real honest about why they're doing what they're doing, whether it's, um, you know, selling drugs or if they're breaking into homes. It's basically because they're not getting their basic needs met at home. Mm-hmm. It's either because it's from a single-parent home, the mom doesn't have the means to provide for them what they need, so they start... Um, getting out in the streets and forming families among their gang members and to survive, they will either um, do whatever is necessary. So poverty is driving a lot of that. So, and if they feel that they're out there having to um, sell drugs and they have to protect themselves, then, you know, they're going to do whatever they have to do to arm themselves. Mm. And I was just really amazed at how honest they were about it's a survival thing. And I don't know if, if, some of the uh, politicians are getting it, but I think poverty drives a lot of that. Yeah, that's very because interesting. If they had opportunities, they wouldn't, or if their parents had opportunities where they could be taken care of properly, they wouldn't have to resort to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, so what what sort of changes would you like to see to make sure that Muskegon community members are going to continue, continue to be safe? Well, I think they really need to honestly talk to these kids and find out why they're doing what they're doing. Um, because, of course, if you break the law, of course, you've got to pay the consequences for that. Mm-hmm. But I can remember growing up, when I was a teenager, there was uh, a multitude of opportunities to work um, where you can earn money. Like during the summer, a lot of these kids are going to be idle. Yep. And if they had more programs where kids can earn money so that they can kind of supplement the family household, because, you know, most wages have not increased and the last, I don't know, over the last 10 years has not kept up with inflation. So if you have a, a single-parent home and they have four or five kids and mom is making $10 or less an hour, how is that going to stretch for five or six people? Mm-hmm. So if you have the teenagers who have an opportunity to work and make money, maybe they you know, wouldn't feel that they needed to go out and, and do some things that you know, that's going to get them in trouble. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. And moving... Um we have been touching on some pretty heavy issues, so moving to something a little bit lighter. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I know you've been in, you're involved a lot in the community. Can you tell us about an experience you've had with any organization helping to improve the community and how that's felt? Well, I think the community foundation is set up to do a lot of great things, um, but to be just a little critical of that, I think they do a lot of things for the arts and for maybe just um, some fundraisers. But I think um, if they were more willing to um, devote a little bit more of their time and funding towards helping some of the, um, the youth, um, whether it's programming or getting them involved in some clubs, um, from what I'm hearing now that they're going to be starting a boys and girls club in Muskegon, finally. They've been trying to do that for the last, probably over the last 10 years. It's great to hear. So I'm hoping that the um, Community Foundation can get involved with that, and that would give the kids at least an opportunity to go to a, a structure and safe organizational um, setup where they'll have, like, activities, and they'll have an opportunity to um, 
meet with mentors and, and go on different field trips and, 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 and go on um, outings outside of Muskegon and be able to meet with some mentors and pair them up so that they can have someone to follow them, you know, through um, their adult life. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really good to hear. And again, you know, I don't want to make it sound like community or Muskegon is a community filled with problems. It's just uh, it, it's easy to kind of highlight some of these and um, kind of make more broad assessments of the state of Michigan as whole different communities. Um, but you've lived right. in community or Muskegon for a very long time, obviously. So what has made yeah. you want, want to continue living there and continue to be a part of that community? Well, my, my family is here. Um, and, you know, I have the ability where, you know, my husband and I, we both have um, very good jobs. So we have the ability to, 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 to travel and to leave and, and visit other, um, you know, other cities. I mean, I like the small city setting. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of disappointed at how some of the, um, the events over the last five years have kind of um, brought the community to where it's at now with um, uh, the issues with the schools and, and some of the violence. But I, I do like the small town living. And like I said, most of my family is here and I have friends here. And, you know, ever since, you know, my kids were little, we've always had the ability to take them outside of Muskegon, you know, to see, um, you know, different parts of the country. So um, mm-hmm. that's probably why I'm I'm still here. Mm-hmm. My job is here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you for being with us today. Now, although Muskegon seems to face many problems, we wanted to look on the positive side as well and understand where the community is succeeding. Bob Lukens of the Muskegon County Conventions and Visitors Bureau helped us to explore this subject. Muskegon has changed considerably from, uh, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's, uh, it's really developing into a tourism destination now. Hmm, that's really interesting. Um, but, you know, with, with like uh, many places in the state, the recession did hit Muskegon pretty hard. Um, have you seen kind of a growth in the community since then? Yes, we have, actually. Uh, it did hit the community hard here, and that was before I came here. Mm-hmm. I'm originally from the Chicago area, and I've been here since October of 2011. And that was, you know, we were still kind of in the throes of the recession then. Uh, but... So things were slow here then. Uh, there wasn't much development happening, but you know, as we started to pull out of it in uh, 2013, you know, we really started to pull out of it, and things began getting better. So we saw a lot of interest in our downtown area. Um, just uh, in December of 2013, Unruly Brewing opened. It's a, a local brewer, a, a great new brew pub that we have here in downtown Muskegon. And then a little later in 2014. 14, I think it was March or April that they opened. Pigeon Hill Brewing opened. So we have two brand new breweries here. Um, and we also have uh, a new farmer's market, $4 million farmer's market wow. that just opened on uh, Memorial Day weekend. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of great things happening here. We have interest in a lot of the downtown properties and some of the vacant lots here. So um, things are really looking up for Muskegon. The uh, unemployment numbers are dropping. So, you know, that's a great thing for the area. Um, jobs are beginning to come back. Uh, the visitors are coming back. Um, even this past winter, which was, you know, horrible throughout the entire Midwest, 
Um, we were fortunate. We're fortunate here in Muskegon County to have the Winter Sports Complex out at Muskegon State Park, and they had their banner year this year because of the snow and the cold. They were able to keep their ice rinks open and their luge and um, uh, cross country ski trails. All of those were open virtually for the entire winter season, and uh, they had their best year ever. So tourism-wise, things are improving. Economy-wise, things are improving in Muskegon. And jobs-wise, things are improving in Muskegon. So it's really an exciting time to be here to see all this growth. That's really great to hear. And uh, just a reminder, you're listening to Exposure on Impact 89 FM, and we're talking with Bob Lukens, who's a Community Development Director at Muskegon County Conventions and Visitors Bureau. Um, so, you know, looking forward, what kind of events do we have to look forward to this summer in Muskegon? Well, we have a huge array of events here at Muske- in Muskegon. If you've ever been here, you're probably familiar with uh, Heritage Landing. It's a, a beautiful waterfront park that we kind of call our festival grounds here. Um, and it's located right on Muskegon Lake. And annually, every year, there are uh, a number of festivals there, including the Unity Christian Music Festival. And that is in August, mid-August. Uh, the Michigan Irish Music Festival, and that's in um, the second weekend of September. But we also have a new event that's coming into town at Heritage Landing, and that's the Shoreline Jazz Festival. That'll be happening uh, August 23rd and 24th, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will include uh, performances by Kenny G and Boney James, Jeff Lorber Fusion, uh, Ruben Studdard, and a number of other um, a number number of other artists um, in both the jazz and popular music uh, uh, genres. So that'll be a great new event um, in downtown Muskegon proper. Not at, at Heritage Landing. We have three major events that happen there. Uh, Taste of Muskegon is happening in June. Uh, actually, that is Taste of Muskegon is June 20th and 21st, right downtown. And then we also have the uh, uh, Lakeshore Art Festival, and that's happening over the 4th of July holiday, July 4th and 5th. Um, that's running in conjunction with a new event at Heritage Landing, too. It'll be a one-year event right now um, that's called Here's to the Heroes, mm-hmm. and that's a salute to veterans and to the nation um, over Independence Day. So we'll have fireworks, bands out there. Um, it'll be a great uh, gathering for the community. Well, very cool. Um, it, it sounds like we have a lot of uh, cool events coming up. Um, and just kind of a, as a personal question, you said that you're not originally from Muskegon. You're from Chicago. What brought you up to Muskegon? Well, I'll tell you, it's kind of an, a funny story. I came up here f- for an interview, and um, I, saw the, I saw the town and the downtown. And um, for people that know Muskegon, there used to be a mall here right in the downtown area. Well, that was torn down in about 2002 or 2003. Mm-hmm. So there were a number of vacant lots in the area and storefronts that were vacant. And I didn't really see that as a negative I saw that as a positive of uh, a kind of a, a clean slate from which to start. And um, the thing that really sold it for me was right in the center of downtown Muskegon, there's a huge sculpture here that, that, is, um, that was created by Richard Hunt. And he's a famous living sculptor um, from the Chicagoland area. 
and I was very familiar with his work because I was a um, I was on the board of the Nathan Manilow Sculpture Park in, at Governor State University in Illinois. Mm-hmm. So I was familiar with Mr. Hunt's work, and when I saw this here from a Chicago artist, and I saw the downtown area and the potential for downtown Muskegon, I thought this is a sign. This is a place that I should be. So um, I went home and talked with my wife, and um, she said, well, you know, just go for it. If you really believe in it, go for it. So uh, I moved here in October of 2011. Um, I lived here for nine months in a little tiny apartment about as big as my office now. And then uh, nine months later, my family uh, came to join me here in Muskegon. And, you know, we've been having a great time ever since. It's a lot, it's, it's an exciting time to be here. And, um, my family, I think feels the same way. So we're glad to be here. It's on the other side of the lake. Um, so it's different and it's much more beautiful to be honest with you. So we love it here. <laughs> well, good to hear. Um, and it sounds like, you know, you have a lot of hope for the future of Muskegon. So what do you, what do you personally hope that you see in the future in Muskegon? Well, I hope to see the the downtown filled in uh, with more buildings, uh, retailers, bars and restaurants, um, cultural type uh, uh, facilities and events. We have the beautiful Froenthal Theater downtown here and Mm -hmm. the West Michigan Symphony here and the uh, Muskegon Museum of Art, which is really a world-renowned art museum. And then a number of very historic buildings and other uh, other, um, edifices that have been preserved so um, history is very apparent here, but I just hope to see uh, Muskegon develop more as a tourism destination, a year-round tourism destination, because we are the largest city on the um, uh, west coast of Michigan. Um, it would be great to be able to see Muskegon become a year-round destination, and not just a summer destination like some of the other um, destinations here in Michigan. Um, but because we're an urban area, it would be great to uh, have that year-round influx of visitors and just general, um, in general, just kind of a, a thriving local economy. And I think that's starting to happen, and I just want to see it through. Awesome. Well, great to hear. Is there anything else you want to add before we head out? Uh, there's one big event that I forgot. It's in mid-July, and it's called Bike Time. Um, we get about 90,000 motorcyclists in town then, right down Western Avenue in the heart of Muskegon, and it's a great event uh, just to check out, even if you don't ride. There's bands and a number of uh, other uh, fun activities going on for the entire family, so check that out, too. All right. Well, thanks so much, Robert. Thank you for joining us tonight. Special thanks to station manager Gabriela Saldivia and general manager Ed Glazer. Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time. I am Stephen Rich and you have been listening to Impact Exposure 89FM.
broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.